0: Hey, Rockheads, stop syncing your lock, uh, locking your sink. Well, you try and come up with a joke about concurrency. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 166 with guest Joe Duffy, recorded live Saturday, March 4th. 2006. .Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .Net 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP .Net web applications. Online at www.telerik.com Support is also provided by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience. Online at www.devexpress.com Also by Code Magazine. The leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now the man with no hidden agenda, Hansel Minutes, Hansel Minutes, Hansel Minutes. Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's Carl Franklin. You're listening to .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers, the original podcast in the .NET world. Isn't that right, Richard Campbell? Absolutely. We've been playing our We're the Original Guys card lately. I don't know why. just feel like saying that. Well, there's more and more stuff out there, and podcasting is really
2: getting widespread acceptance, and there's a lot of content, so people wonder if we're newcomers, and no, we're
1: not. There's a reason we have 166 shows. We've been doing this for a while. August 2002 was the first show that we did with Pat Hines. Seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Time does fly. Time does fly. Well, Richard, I've been working this week on uh, a new program called Pwop Catcher. The uh, boilerplate website is at PwopCatcher.com. Basically, we're sitting around here looking around and saying, you know, there really aren't that many podcast downloaders that uh, are written with .NET. There's a few. Nimic is one. Uh, There's a few others. But there isn't anything that uses BitTorrent to its fullest potential in, uh, in .NET. Well, and it's, I find it
2: very frustrating. Most of these dot, these uh, podcasting clients are, are pretty appalling. It, it bothers me that the best podcasting client out there is made by Apple. That's just
1: not right. There should yeah. be something better. And you know what? It really isn't the best one. It's just the one that most people use. And I think more of it has to do with the fact that you can search for stuff and find lots of stuff, lots of podcasts on it. That has probably more to do with its success plus you know, the fact that it's Apple than the quality of the software, which I don't think is that great. So I started working on this uh, project, and uh, it's not available yet. We're working on it. We've got the Pwop Ambassadors busy testing it. And uh, I'll just let you know how that goes. Right now it's subscribing to feeds and downloading with HTTP and all that's great. Now we're just looking for usability uh, stuff. So if you're a listener and you use podcast downloaders, and you're interested in helping us find the best features that we can possibly put into this program, just shoot us an email, rocks at franklins.net. We'll see what happens. So, Richard, what have you been doing this week? Well, you know, we've got all our big
2: conferences booked up in uh, TechEd and, and SDC and so forth, but I've also uh, some local action going on as well. The, the Vancouver's got, finally going to have a code camp on uh, March 18th. Awesome. So uh, looking forward to that, and rumor has it, uh, Mister Rory Blythe is coming up for that. No kidding, yeah. And uh, over in Victoria, uh, April eighth, uh, they're having a code camp as well, and I'm uh, going to be involved with that
1: one too. So both local shows, uh, going to be a lot of fun to uh, get involved with the code camp guys. Excellent, and uh, we're going to be down at Dev Connections in Orlando, aren't we? Yeah, right around that same time, I'm going to zip in and uh, do .NET Rocks live, and zip back out again. I believe we're on uh, April fifth at the Hyatt Grand Cypress uh, Resort in Orlando. Is it just so, me, or does it feel like conference
2: session uh, conference season is starting early this year?
1: Yeah, it seems that way. Well, okay, let's introduce Joe. Joe Duffy is a program manager on the Common Language Runtime team at Microsoft, where he works on programming models for concurrency. His responsibilities include planning future product and incubation investments designing individual features, researching and developing new technologies, managing various .NET Framework libraries and features of the virtual machine itself, delivering presentations and writing articles. Prior to Microsoft, Joe lived in Massachusetts, where he held positions ranging from software engineer, architect, and a CTO of a small startup. Joe's first book, .NET Framework 2.0, hits the shelves in early April, and he is actively working on his next concurrent programming on Windows to ship sometime in late 2006, early 2007. Joe regularly blogs at com. Welcome, Joe.
3: Hey, guys. How's it going?
1: Fabulous. Good to have you on the show.
3: It's great to be here.
1: Concurrency. That's a kind of a broad topic. Do you mean... Any kind of concurrency when you have uh, parallel systems?
3: Yeah, so it's kind of a nebulous term, right? Um, so I mean, concurrency in the broad sense. How do you take a piece of software and you know make it use multiple threads, make it do multiple things at once? Yeah. Uh, a lot of times that that actually involves using parallel hardware, like the new fancy multi-core machines that are now uh, available. Woohoo! Yeah. Yeah, we like but those. Al- also, you know, just. Splitting work into multiple threads so that you don't do silly things like freeze your UI thread. Right. You know, so you can use it for for a variety of things. And it ultimately comes down to uh, performance, You know, getting better responsiveness out of your programs and actually making it do more things in a smaller amount of time.
1: I was just dealing with this issue.
3: And we
2: had a conversation about this, like, yesterday. Yesterday, that's right. <laughs> we were arguing over the priorities of different threads in an application and where they should sit in relation to the whole operating system.
1: Because doesn't <laughs> it bug you when you have an application that has to do something that takes all the CPU, and it takes all the CPU and, and and everything freezes up when I know it might not be that easy in other languages and other platforms, but, you know, in .NET, it's as simple as taking the current thread and dipping the priority below normal, and then magically everything else in your desktop will work.
3: Yeah, and it actually, you know, this is a really big problem for some reason. Uh it is the solution is pretty simple, but a lot of people do silly things like CPU intensive tasks on the UI thread. And I think one of the problems is that people might not understand how Windows UIs work in that, you know, there's a special UI thread and that thread is the only thing in the system that can process incoming events. So if you're clicking on the window, that special thread needs to respond to that event. And right. if it's tied up doing something CPU-intensive, if it's waiting for a network request to time out, if your network cable suddenly came unplugged, for example, right. you know, the UI thread is not going to be able to process those messages you know, you get the nice uh, not responding in the title bar. Your window stops painting. Yep. You know, it goes blank. And then ultimately you either learn to be patient with your software or you learn to become very familiar with the Red X <laughs> and end task exactly. features of the OS.
2: <laughs>
3: and, you know, it's not just .NET applications. It's, you know, all Windows applications are, have this problem. And, in fact, uh the CLR helps you in this regard. So in some sense, we're trying to fix some of these problems at the platform level without you know, requiring that the developer f- familiarize himself with the concept of the UI thread and all of this nonsense. I mean, right. you basically just want to write your code and have it work correctly.
1: We also have... We were talking about the issue of, okay, the first step is doing CPU-intensive code on another thread, but then the second thing that you need to... Because that can... That can cause a problem, too. I mean, if it's taken up a lot of CPU, the CPU is the CPU, and uh, all the other threads, including the UI thread, can get pushed out. So the the, the solution there is to drop the priority a little bit.
3: You can can drop the priority. It's also the the Windows um, shell actually helps you out here in that... Uh, the UI thread, it, it knows about UI threads, and Windows actually tweaks the priority using something called the priority boost hmm. um, on the UI thread itself. So when it's in the foreground and you're clicking around, it it knows that's generating events that need to get processed. So it actually temporarily temporarily boosts the uh, priority of the UI thread so it can respond to that.
0: But Sweet. you're right,
3: if you have something that's really hogging the CPU and, and um, it's actually performing sort of background work, for example, it's indexing files on in your hard disk so that it's, it's cached, so, so that it's faster to access the next time. Mm-hmm. Those types of background activities, definitely, you can, you can look at things like priorities yeah. so that they don't starve your entire machine.
1: Hey, Joe, what is the, why, did, why does Windows warn you when you're in the task manager and you have a rogue application that's hogging all the CPU and you drop its prior, the priority of that process down what are some of the things that can go wrong? I mean, it tells you, and it works. You know, I do this all the time when I have applications that are just not comp- not playing well with others. Mm-hmm. I drop it down to below normal, and uh, and and everything comes back. But why do, why do they warn you that, you know, this can cause weird problems? What kind of problems can it cause?
3: Well, one of the problems is that um, <clears throat> a lot of processes will do something with machine-wide state. There are a lot of... Um, you know, mutexes, things that are cross-machine, that processes Mm. acquire and release over time. Um, And you can get to a situation where a process that's actually very important to the system has its priority dropped. Mm. And this cross-process coordination, it can kind of gum up your entire system if one process that is managing resources can't manage them effectively because its priority is too low. I see. There's sort of special relationships between processes that aren't known to the OS. They're not, and the the person that's in the task manager changing priorities seldom knows about this either, because it's implementation detail. Right. Um, so it can lead to to just problems with performance that are system wide that you may not anticipate.
2: Well, you're thinking, wow, well, if I drop the priority on this process, I'll get my machine back but it turns out it's holding some kind of critical segment of code in the operating system. And until that's freed up, you're not getting your machine back, and you just made it less likely for it to finish.
3: Right.
1: So what kinds of things are you working on uh, in terms of the Datna framework uh, specifically?
3: Well, so I I pretty much um, own the features um, in the framework that are associated with introducing concurrency, so the thread pool um, the actual thread classes themselves, and the system.threading namespace, as well as just general monitors, locking, that sort of thing. Wow. So, yeah, good <laughs> stuff.
1: Wow, Richard, we're in the presence of
2: greatness here. Uh, no doubt about this. It, this is, You know, the funny thing is it's not obvious code right off the bat, but you impact everything we do. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. We basically cannot write a .NET app today without being multithreaded.
3: Yeah, it's actually funny. We've been talking recently about how we might improve the thread pool. And when you stop to think about it, how many people are using the thread pool? You know, anybody who's writing a UI app is probably using the thread pool either directly. That would be
0: all
2: of us. (laughs)
3: Yes, or indirectly. But ASP.NET itself, um, when it receives a web request and has to dispatch a worker, it gets that thread from the thread pool so right. any changes we make we need to be very cognizant of affecting any software that's you know on top of us right and that's a general theme with all of the base class libraries and the runtime itself
2: yeah there's definitely tracks of code in here that you should fear be very very careful
1: uh, i can i can't imagine the incredible amount of planning that must have gone into developing those classes um just because they have such huge impact everywhere, do you ever have other departments that uh, you know that y- you bump bump heads occasionally in terms of design and architecture because of things that that you've uh, done or haven't done
3: Oh yeah, um, must be like you know, any time like right now you ask you ask me what what i'm I'm doing right now, so one of the things that we're doing is uh, planning for the next couple of releases of the net framework. Um, you know we just got two o out the door. We're looking yeah. ahead to the future and planning what resources, what features we want to invest in. And that process is a very long process. It's, it starts with accumulating all of the customer feedback that we've received, um, researching what new technologies are out there, um, where are the holes in the framework today, what do people struggle with, do usability studies to find out, you know, where do people trip up when they're trying to write uh, concurrent software. Yeah so that's that's the first phase where you're actually gathering all this data. then you need to crunch through it and ultimately come up with some proposals and then the fund starts because it's consensus building from there on in. You need to make sure that all the partners that are using uh this code and when I say partner, I mean companies inter or uh, teams internally that are using the c l r as well as external partners um our customers externally that are using the software we want to make sure that we don't first of all, break people, and second of all, that we're investing in the right area. So it's it's a tricky uh, equation to figure out, and uh, it takes a lot of time.
1: So do you have any stories of uh, issues that have come up between departments of design, architecture, things like that, that had to be resolved?
3: Well, so there's one, I guess there's, with the thread pool um, in particular, there's one one problem that's recurring, um, actually, there's a set of problems with our thread pool that are just recurring problems, and it seems like everybody who tries to use it for a really complex piece of software that, that tries to build the entire architecture of their software around this, they they trip up on one of five things, say, and it seems like everybody trips up on at least one of those five things. Um, one example, and I... I think I got five customers at PDC who asked me how to work around this and recently uh, a couple teams internally, but our thread pool can actually deadlock your application um, oh. if you if you create too much work. So it's a really nasty thing, obviously, because... Is that um, because
1: there's only 25 threads in the thread pool per processor per process? And exactly. if you start throwing more at it, they queue up and slow yep. things down?
3: So, you uh, you know, the... The simplest example is say so you have twenty six pieces of work. You yeah. queue up the twenty five. Each of those twenty-five goes to goes to sleep waiting on event and an event that the twenty sixth is going to generate. Yeah. Well, unfortunately <laughs> the twenty five are blocked, the twenty sixth will never execute, and therefore your application is probably stuck. Wow. And you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Wow. This is a very, very common problem. And the solution is the tricky one. Because you know, your first inclination is to say, well, let's just create more threads.
1: Yeah, right? that's yeah. not We won't do
3: respect it. the hard limit. We will instead, you know, surge past it temporarily just so that we can unstick the work. But that has problems as well because you know the ideal is to have one thread per CPU on the machine. So already 25 is 24 more than we ideally want to have. So (laughs) how far do you go? You create 100, you know, and then what happens if they all suddenly become runnable? You can have a a real mess on your hands because the overhead with context switching between that many threads is just going to kill the performance of your application. So this is a problem that That we're still working through, but, you know, it's a difficult one, and... Uh, finding a solution that works for everybody is really the tricky part.
2: Have yeah, you, that, that's almost impossible. It, there's never one solution for everyone in that kind of situation,
3: right? So you need to understand the people who are having the problems, the people that aren't having the problems, and try to come up with, you know, perhaps variables that that Threadpool is aware of to to tune this behavior.
1: Have you um have you have you studied other operating systems in the way that they work? Do they also have this problem? Like, does Linux and Unix? Fundamentally, you have this problem?
3: Well, actually, Unix um, traditionally doesn't even use threads. They use processes for the isolation and for concurrency. Hmm. Um, but there are libraries that implement threads essentially on top of uh, the OS. And uh, that's how, you know, Java gives you these nice thread abstractions that work just as well on... Uh, Unix, as they do on Windows, right? Uh, and they, they take advantage of these things.
1: So Java um, also has this issue?
3: They do, although they have a, a different set of libraries. Um, so they have a couple different types of thread pools that you can choose from. I believe they have a task pool abstraction, which um, is different than uh, a thread pool. Um, and I believe they, they, they give you variables to, to fine-tune this kind of stuff. But yeah. It's kind of a creative process to come up with these solutions. So um, it would be a shame if we shipped a thread pool in the next version that looked identical to Java's. So I don't right. want to taint my view of the of <laughs> the situation. So you avoid yeah. looking at it? To some degree, yeah.
1: And I imagine that uh, Windows Vista just is another layer of complexity on top. You know, talk about multiple things going on, you know, and mm-hmm. heavy processing.
3: Oh, but- yeah. The more um, the more heavy processing that we add uh, to the system. I mean, the more the more work that's going on aside from just your program. The more and more we need these these new multi-core CPUs, and uh, you know, the more we need to be cognizant of how we actually break down the work in our applications.
2: Yeah, I had an interesting discussion with a developer who will remain nameless to protect the guilty. Uh, and he was talking about building the great multi-threaded app, and he had a whole bunch of discrete works, work. It was essentially individual tasks, each one of which could take anywhere between 10 and a, minutes and a half an hour. And he wanted to build this app that would just keep spawning off threads as the t- jobs came in and run them all multi-threaded. And I said to him, you know, these tasks have nothing to do with each other. Why not just run multiple instances of the app? Yeah. And leave it naturally broken apart, so you can spread it across machines and not play games with all these threads. Right?
3: Mm-hmm. they creating threads is a little lower cost than creating a process, um, but I think you know the the general the general idea of breaking up work and associating um, different units of isolation, whether that's a thread or a process per piece of work is is kind of the key here. It's much easier in a server environment. You mentioned the word job, so it sounds like something is generating work and this program is responding to that incoming work and servicing it as needed. So that's a special category. Like a web server, for example, does the same thing. A database does this. Um, a workflow yeah. does a similar thing if you're using the Windows Workflow Foundation. So it's it's easier in those types of environments to figure out the granularity of concurrency. You, know, you right. allocate one thread per job. You allocate one thread per work request. It's a little easier in those situations. When you talk about doing it on the client, however, the granularity of work is much more difficult. I mean, you have four loops over here. You have uh, calls to databases over here. Maybe you're doing some file I.O. over here. And it's all kind of munged together. There's no really uh, clean separation between... Um, the units of code that could be run in parallel. You know, there's dependencies all over the place in your code that may or may not um, be required to make your code correct. And that's one of the trickiest things. When you look out to the future for multi-core computing, I mean, how do you break traditional client apps up so that they can take advantage of 64 cores, for example, 128 cores, for example, Oh uh, man, I'm a getting really excited!
1: Hard Ooh ah, hey, hey hey! Now I'm getting excited. <laughs> this portion of .NET Rocks! brought to you by Telerik RAD Controls. The most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.telerik.com. Hey, you know, um, one of the mistakes that I've made, and maybe we could talk about common mistakes people make, I learned this the hard way, but uh, it was a great learning experience nonetheless. We um, process this show with a program that um, basically is a one-button-push production now. Mm-hmm. It uh, goes, it takes a wave file, splits it in two, uh, and then it shells out to LAME and creates MP3 files, and it shells out to Windows Media Encoder and creates WMA files. And then uses com interop to talk to iTunes to make an M4B file, puts all those together, copies those files around and tags them and everything else and publishes the show. But that first part of the process is generating files. And my first thought was ah, I can create all these MP3 files and WMA files simultaneously. So on different threads. Mm. Yeah, probably it was not a good idea. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, the it, the answer and the reason why it's not a good idea may or may not be obvious to the listener right now, but it wasn't to me at the time. And, and finally, it hit me. Well, duh, you know, you're using one disk. Yep. They're all writing to the same disk. So it takes the same amount of time. In fact, it's probably going to take more because you're thrashing around writing large amounts of data, you know, in three or four places at once. It wasn't good.
3: I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's one problem, and you have to realize that there are resources on the machine. The CPU is one. Yeah. Disks are another. The network is another. You know, the network is one resource that, you know, there's one pipe. Right. You know, some machines might have multiple pipes, but on your average desktop, there's one pipe going in, and into and out of the machine. Yeah. And just creating more and more requests for that resource just creates a bigger bottleneck trying yeah. to get into and out of that resource. It
1: doesn't really buy you anything. So I guess the rule is, you know, if you have multiple threads that are both accessing the same resource, you're not really going to get any gain. If you're going out to, let's say, return a web service from this server and that server and the other server, hey, now that's that's a great thing because most of the time you're sitting and waiting for the reply. Right. right?
3: Yep. So you have to kind of identify where you're doing work that uses the CPU. Yeah. Like, for example, you might be reading from a disk, but you may be reading in 4K chunks at a time and then doing you know, a bunch of processing on each chunk as you read it in. Yeah. That is still something that you can parallelize. You can run it on multiple threads, and you'll probably see a benefit from that, even though they're trying to access the same resource. Same thing with network connection, where there's latency and delays and a lot of waiting going on. But you're right. If, the, if you have something that's hammering a resource splitting it up so there's five things hammering that one resource, (laughs) it's probably not a good idea. But there are, you know, there are a lot of problems with concurrency. And, you know, they they kind of fall into two categories. And the first category is how do you split up your work? I kind of just mentioned that, that, you know, ties in with what you were just talking about. The second is actually protecting access to shared things. The concept of of
2: mutexes?
3: Mutexes, monitors, locks—these kinds of things. If you're, right. you know, if you have a static um, hash table that has a, a mapping from customer IDs to customers, and you're sharing that throughout your entire process, right? Then, if multiple threads are accessing that thing, you need to make sure that it's being done in a thread-safe way. You need to be taking locks. I mean, it seems kind of obvious, but yeah. it, it gets really tricky because locks—that you need to make sure you're taking them at the right granularity right. that has impacts on performance. So you're parallelizing your code, and then, you know, on the other hand, you're saying, well, all, all this code needs to actually serialize access to a resource, which essentially undoes that parallelism yeah. to some degree. So getting that right, you know, making sure you're locking all access to shared data.
1: Yeah, boy, don't I know it. That is it, tough. I, you know, I especially find it challenging because there's two things that you lock, right? You you can lock an object mm-hmm. with with sync lock or the lock keyword in C sharp, and and you can also lock that around a block of code. So what you're really doing is you're locking that code. You know, it's not just about the object you're using as the lock object. Right. There's you, two different scenarios there.
3: And you, you know, you need to make sure that your the block of code is the right block of code. You know, and yeah. you might. You might try to make it make the block smaller, so you're not holding the lock for as long, but then you need to make sure that you know things that are falling outside of that block actually aren't modifying that shared data structure. Yeah. People try to get clever here you know there's a whole category of of programming called lock free programming where you're actually trying to use um the intimate knowledge of how the machine works and how the the memory model of the processor you're you're on actually works and exploiting that to do things without taking locks. Yee. Right. This is really difficult to do. Some people try to do it. To be honest, most people that try to do it shouldn't be trying to do it. They should be just taking <laughs> locks and then optimizing when they actually find a problem. But a lot of people prematurely optimize. You know the next the next step up is using interlocked operations. So There's Mm -hmm. interlocked compare exchange operations that use primitives in the hardware, which are essentially what I call low lock techniques, because interlocked is basically taking very small lock, but it does it at the hardware level, Right. and you don't actually hold it. You're only using the lock for a single update, and then the next step up is actually using monitors and locking on things for entire regions of code.
1: So, uh the difference between a lock and a mutex, that's always a fun thing to talk about.
3: Well, a mutex is kind of a lock, but the the neat thing about mutexes on Windows is that unlike say a monitor in on the CLR, you can use it to synchronize access to shared resources across multiple processes on the machine. Yeah. So, if you had um, some shared resource. Maybe you have a, um, you know, a Windows service that manages some data or something, and you need to serialize access to that. You could use a mutex for that because it's cross-process.
1: And not just you, cr- is cross-process the only reason to use a mutex?
3: Well, you can use it for, you know, the same process. You can use it to the same way you would a monitor. It has some benefits because. Um, it it can be named, for example, so that makes mm-hmm. it easier when you're debugging. It right. has some facilities. Um, for example, it it has the Windows has the notion of an abandoned mutex. So if your process crashes and doesn't release that mutex, you know your process held the mutex, crashed, and never released it. The next person that tries to acquire it will will actually get a special um, exception back that says the mutex was abandoned, and that might indicate that certain the shared data structures are corrupt, and mm. you can use that to trigger some logic to actually inspect the data structure, ask mm. the user to reboot the machine, whatever has to be done at that point.
2: Hmm. Is not there also some external um, governance on mutexes that you can set limits for how long mutexes can be held and that sort of thing?
3: Uh, I don't think so. Um, not, that, not that I'm aware of.
1: Are you thinking of a semaphore? Maybe I am. Now, now, what's that? What's a semaphore? And, and yeah,
3: A semaphore is kind of like a mutex, except, well, let me reverse that. A mutex is kind of like a semaphore. <laughs> a semaphore has a count, right? And when somebody acquires it, uh, they decrement the count. And okay. if the count ever reaches zero and somebody tries to acquire it, they block, waiting on it. I and then see. only when the semaphore is incremented will they actually be able to move forward. So a mutex is like a semaphore with a count of one. I got it. Right. And a semaphore is useful for resources which are finite in number. So Hmm. you can imagine using a semaphore for a pool of database connections. Right. somebody wants to check out a database connection, when they do that, you would decrement the semaphore. And when they were done with the connection, they put it back in the pool and that increments the semaphore. And then you have a nice... A nice model for representing a finite number of resources.
1: Hey, is there? I always wanted to know this. Is there any? Is there any um, benefit to using a monitor object directly rather than using lock or sync lock?
3: Um, well, monitor gives you a couple things that just using the lock keyword doesn't. One is timeout, so you can actually specify a timeout when you say monitor.enter. dot mm. And you know there some there's a category, a camp of people that think using timeouts for deadlock detection um is a useful thing. And to some degree it is, um, but it's useful for testing your applications for deadlocks. You seldom want to actually ship your application when where you actually expect the timeouts to occur. You wanna you wanna test your applications pretty rigorously to make sure that the timeouts will never occur, but right. you can use it for that purpose. Um in general, it's easier to use the lock keyword because um, making sure, guaranteeing that you actually exit the monitor requires that you use like a try-finally block. Okay. And the actual coding pattern there is kind of hidden behind the scenes with the lock keyword. So it makes it a lot easier for you.
1: It's a little bit more explicit. Sure. Um, when When is it a good idea to use... Uh, the thread pool versus... Or let me let me put it to you this way. I guess what you probably would say is use the thread pool if you can, and you know, if your number of threads is low. And so the question becomes, when should you be using your own threads and monitors and locks and mutexes?
3: Well, you still need to use monitors and locks when you're using the thread pool as well. Um, right. So people, people need to be cautious of that, too, regardless of whether you're doing explicit or thread pool uh, threading. But using explicit threads, you know, the default answer is use the thread pool, which you already said. But if you need to, for example, change the priority of threads, that's something you shouldn't be doing on the thread pool. So we talked earlier on about Mm. some cases where you might want to change the priority. If something's doing kind of low-priority background work probably just allocating a thread, maybe changing, you know, uh, threads on the CLR have this nice is background property, so you can set that to true, so the thread won't keep the process alive. Mm. And then you can change the priority of it as well. And so that thing kind of lives in the background doing its work, and it never really interferes with anything else. That's a great situation where you you can consider using uh, explicit threading.
1: Now, you said it's probably not a good idea to change priority on ThreadPool threads because they go back to the pool and someone else is going to get it. And,
3: right. Right. And I don't know this, but I am suspecting that we don't actually try to change the priority back. We just assume that the priority is fixed. And You wouldn't
2: back, do that. Nobody would modify that. That should be fine. <laughs> just leave it alone.
3: Right. So you may actually uh, unintentionally affect other work that gets scheduled on the thread pool later on and... Could be could have bad effects, yeah. I could imagine. Now, what
1: That's if I'm good. really careful and I set it back to normal when I'm done?
3: Well, if you're really careful, maybe you, maybe you can start <laughs> doing some of that. <laughs> I feel like I, I'm I asking
1: go. my dad for the keys to the car, you know? But, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that, that is going to
2: cause a rot in the system. You know, after a while, things start to behave weird. Yep. And it's somebody did damage to the thread pool in some app somewhere and now it's damaged, and it's going to stay that way until you reboot or shut down. Well, right.
1: but it is per processor per process, right? So Per
3: process, yes.
1: So every process gets its own thread pool. So, right. Yep. So if you're the only app in your process, you have control of the thread pool. If you don't care, then you don't care. You're only causing Although, weirdness to yourself.
3: If you're writing something like a reusable library, you really should Ooh. be be careful because... Good point. We, we, we're we kind of changing our mindsets around here, the CLR team, to, be cog, to, to think about the fact that we actually run in-process in SQL Server. And right. as we look forward, <laughs> there's a lot of things to do with uh, hosting plugins in the same process. And app domains are kind of the unit of isolation inside of the process, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But we share a thread pool across the entire process, which means that Work in app domain A can run, finish working, and then some work on app domain B can actually get scheduled onto the same thread in the right. thread pool that just service A. Yeah. If you change priorities, you're actually you know some rogue code um in in a different app domain can start affecting somebody else's code in another. And in the case of SQL Server, this could be running, you know different teams in the same company's code on the same box. Mm-hmm, and it sure. can start interfering with each other in some weird ways.
2: Yeah, you'd think <laughs> you could presume that your process is your own, but you'd be wrong. There are circumstances where you can have your application running in the context of somebody else's process.
1: Exactly. Yeah. All right, so that's a bad idea. So what, other, what are some <laughs> other bad ideas that we can uh, hopefully prevent people from doing?
3: Some bad ideas.
1: Bad ideas. <laughs> That's a bad idea.
3: Don't write your own lock.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, that is <laughs> so a bad idea. So many people idea. try that. Oh, hang uh, on a second. got to delete some code here. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so I, I gave a talk at PDC uh, this year, or last year, I guess it was. Um, and part of my talk was um, how might you go about writing your own spin lock, uh, and then why you shouldn't. Try to do it <laughs> and you know, I got a good crowd reaction there because i a lot of people try this because they think it's easy, you know at first, essentially a spin lock you just uh, it, you can write it in ten lines of code literally, and when I started my presentation I brought that up you know the simple ten line code uh, spin lock and 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 how you might go about writing it, and then I went and pointed out um, the probably 30 places where it was wrong in those 10 lines of code. (laughs) And uh, Jeff Richter actually um, uh, had an MSDN article a couple months back on exactly this, and he showed the the correct way and the incorrect way to write this. But there's a surprising number of things you have to worry about. Um, I can start enumerating them, but, you know, from working well on Intel hyper-threaded machines to ensuring that, you're beginning and ending critical regions correctly so that you work well in a hosted environment, to picking the right uh, spin count and doing an exponential backoff. Mm. All of these kinds of things, you know, it, the, the simple 10-line spin lock ended up being something on the order of 200 lines of code.
1: Yeah, if you really want to do it, it right.
3: And you know, part of the problem there is, is we don't offer all these types of locks that... that um, you know, a lot of our customers are asking for. You know, we have a reader-writer lock, we have a monitor, mutex semaphore. We don't offer this no-wait lock, which is essentially what people want with a spin lock. They want a lock where they know it's going to only ever take a very short period of time when they're trying to acquire it. They want it to spin, they don't want it to block. You know, that's the worst-case scenario is if the spin lock blocks and gives up the CPU. Um, for For highly parallel systems, that's one of the worst things you want to occur, so, you know, what are they to do? We don't give it to them, so they have to go and write it. So that's one of the things we're looking at in the future: is how do we how do we make it so that people don't even think to write their own locks?
1: Hey, now I would be remiss if I didn't mention sockets programming here, because mm-hmm. I I mean I know sockets and threading go hand in hand, especially if when you're, you're doing any kind of uh, service type of situation.
3: It's the, a similar model to the the one I was talking about earlier, where you have a very clear definition of task. Yeah. Right. Servicing an incoming network request, in the case of uh, uh, a socket listening for work, that is a very clear definition of your task. Right. You can easily fork that off to another thread and execute it in parallel with, say, another request that just came in a second afterwards.
1: And I right? find that the uh, the thread pool really works well in that regard for, for this kind of thing.
3: Yeah, it should. I, that's... That's pretty much the threadpool's forte.
1: Now I'm talking. We're talking, of course, here about uh, a request comes in. You service the request, and then you close the connection. No problem. Statelessness. Mm-hmm. But what if you want stateful sockets? I mean, think of consider like an IRC server for a minute. An mm-hmm. IRC server really has to maintain multiple connections all the time. And then you have to do this broadcasting by replicating messages and sending them across all sockets. So you're talking of some kind of list, some some kind of collection right. of sockets. And isn't there, you know, fundamental issues with thread safety and collections? Oh yeah. So what is what is the answer to that dilemma?
3: Well, I, I mean, wish I could say there's a uh, one answer that fits all or one solution that fits all but I think you it it all comes down to being very structured about when you're sharing data right. who you're sharing it with and ensuring that anybody who is accessing that data that could potentially be doing it at the same time that some other thread is going to to access it that you protect that with a lock and that's yeah and and unfortunately there's no um magic oracle that comes down and says Oh, you know what? You forgot to take a lock there, so your code's incorrect.
1: So, like, consider like a broadcast sub, mm-hmm. a sub where you say, you know, I want to broadcast this message. Sure. Uh, maybe it's a method on the collection, whatever. But uh, in that case, are you locking? Do you need to lock the collection as well as the sockets? Or if you have, if you're accessing the collection and the sockets in other places, do you well,
3: do you it architect
1: depends. it so that you only can access the sockets through the collection?
3: You know well, I would think that the um I haven't written a lot of uh i r c servers sure. but i would <laughs> I would imagine that the sockets would be examining some central location for a list of incoming messages to process, yeah um in which case the sockets themselves don't need to. Don't need any synchronization because the sockets aren't the things that are changing. Yeah, it's that central list of messages that is constantly changing. It's constantly in flux. Okay. And therefore, anybody putting new messages in needs to make sure they lock on that data structure. Interesting. And anybody taking messages out of it also needs to lock on it.
1: Taking no. out or just reading? Because you could use a reader or writer or lock just to read messages, right?
3: Correct. Yeah. Reader writer lock would be a great example. In this case, because if you're not modifying the data, a reader-writer lock gives you the property that multiple people can read from it at once, but only one person can write, which gives you better scalability. You know, People that are just reading from this don't need to wait for each other to finish reading. It's, it's more scalable to use a reader-writer lock.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. You know, it's a very interesting um, idea that the architecture that you just... uh, talked about there with where you lock the list instead of the collection of sockets. because you know cl- Collections, I guess, is another part of this issue with, uh, with synchronization. What, what are the issues around collections in general?
3: Well, in general, our, and this is actually the case with all of the libraries we ship, unless it's explicitly stated in the documentation, our basic data structures aren't thread-safe. And what that means is if you're sharing them among multiple threads, it's your responsibility for taking a lock whenever you access them. Right. Now, we ensure that when the implementation of our code actually uses shared state, that we take locks internally so that, you know, if you take, say, an event um, uh, trace source, right, which mm-hmm. is a, a type we ship that gives you nice tracing functionality, yeah, people usually want to share that thing with a static variable, Right. It would be horrible if people shared it with a static variable and then it did something internally that required um, a lock, but we didn't take it, right? So then the it, the trace source could become corrupt, for example. So we make sure that, that type of thing works. But in the case of collections, if you share a list across multiple threads and you're updating it uh, concurrently, you know who knows what's going to happen? You need to take a lock.
1: And you have to use the sync root too, right? The synchronized, what is it? The sync root property, is it, that returns a...
3: So we shipped that in the system collections namespace. We had a sync root property property on basically all the collections. Um, And the generic collections don't actually have that um, Ah. any longer. Ah. The reason is, well, so the overhead... What the old collections used to do is they had this sync, sync root property, which was just an object it had internally, and the implementation of all of the classes made sure that any modifications they did were under a lock. Right. Right. But unfortunately, if you didn't share that across multiple threads, there's actually quite a substantial overhead with taking a lock and releasing it every time you're doing updates.
0: Hmm.
3: So we... And furthermore, it's often not sufficient because you it's not just the data structure you're updating. You're probably doing, you know, taking something out of a data structure and manipulating some other state along right. with it. Most most thread activities don't involve a single read and write. It's usually right. a series of reads and writes that have some special relationship in the application. Yes. So that's the reason why we took away the sync route.
1: That makes sense.
3: And the direction we're trying to move people to in the future, and unfortunately... You know, I'm obviously living in kind of a bubble. I'm, you know, a couple of years ahead. Most people probably um, are just now picking up Whidbey, which I've been living and breathing for years now.
0: So,
3: <laughs> I'm already looking forward to the next versions of the framework, but the yeah. direction we want to go in the future is that people are more structured about the locks they use, that they sort of organize them and define them in one place in their program so you can go and look and see where all of your locks are, and actually name them to make it easier to de- debug these types of concurrency problems and use them rather than locking on arbitrary objects. Rather yeah. than creating a new list and then locking on it, you create a list and a lock that is a separate object that's associated with any updates you're doing with that list and related data structures.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree that that's the way to go. I mean, what would you, you can- call that? Declarative locking? Yeah, you're just basically using a, a reference type, any reference type object as the the thing that is going to be locked. And again, you're really synchronizing access to code. You're not necessarily just locking a single variable, right? It's all about, yeah, it's all about synchronizing access to code.
3: And even looking further out, um, Tim Harris gave a presentation at PDC this year. Um, He works in Microsoft Research. Uh, He has a great website with a lot of research papers. But there's this thing called transactional memory. I actually wrote an article about this in MSDN Magazine a couple months back. The idea here is that you use a model very similar to what databases do for concurrency control. And databases are actually very interesting. If you look at the history of database evolution, some 30 years ago, they were struggling with almost the same problems we're struggling with now hmm. because they were on, in the server environment. So they kind of had to deal with multiple CPUs much earlier than we do. And when I say we, I mean you know, .NET applications on the client. So they have this notion of transactions, right? So they take a query and they actually run it in parallel, multiple... Workers that are coming in simultaneously don't need to worry about whether they're accessing the same rows, whether they're accessing the same tables, that sort of nonsense. And the database does it for them. So transactional memory is actually a way to declaratively say in your code, this region of code is conceptually protected under a lock. But I don't care which lock, I don't care which code is running concurrently with me, just make it safe. And then there's a transaction manager that intelligently makes sure that all the, lo- the right locking happens so that your code doesn't break down. And it gives you all the good debuggability that you don't really get with today's locking.
2: So you're more about defining regions of like memory transactions or code transactions. This is a transactional boundary. Here's a transactional boundary and so forth. I don't care who's taking it.
1: Just that if you go in here, you, all of this is locked exactly. You know, it sounds sort of like the context bound object that uh, that is an option right now to inherit from the context bound object and use the synchronized attribute to uh in the remoting namespace to to make an object completely uh lockable and thread safe. But the problem of course is it's not granular enough. So it, I guess this is an answer to that. I mean, it's sort of a high-level approach to a uh, to the but you can still define your own level of granularity.
3: Right. And it's obviously it's still kind of research technology, but as part of my one of my um the part of my job is to go out and look at different research technologies and see how they might relate to our future plans. So um it's yet to be seen whether transactional memory will be the solution to this kind of locks problem, but you know, we're hopeful, and a lot of the early prototypes that we've seen actually are very impressive so
1: what are the uh what are the what's the scenario for sixty four bit operating systems in terms of threading do any issues go away Do we have new issues
3: um, I think it's pretty much the same issues there's some uh, so, you know some data structures are larger because the size of a pointer doubles in size so to some degree, there's uh, different amounts of overhead associated with threads.
1: Yeah.
2: Um,
3: but but for the most part, it's 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 the same set of problems. They're kind of orthogonal.
1: Yeah, you know the you you were mentioning uh, CPUs with sixteen, thirty two cores on them, hundred and twenty mm-hmm. core, hundred and twenty cores. <laughs> oh my yep. god!
3: What what might you do with one hundred twenty eight cores?
1: Ah, uh, jeez. I really don't know. Yeah, not
2: much, but all at the same time.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we refer to it's the Star Trek era where you finally have computers that all this stuff is going on in the background. It's great, you know, there's rich media, there's a new level of connectedness, you know, messages are flying around behind you. You don't under- you don't know what's going on, but the machine just it's really fast and it's visually and multimedia stunning but you know we have a, we have a ways to go one of the most yeah.
1: one of the most processor intensive things that i've ever done is video rendering yep. you know with adobe premiere
3: yep exactly
1: and the problem of course with using multiple multi you know multiple threads and multiple cores for those guys is that you're it's one big process on one big chunk of data you know, yes. but the only thing, so I actually ended up when we, when we uh, did the DNR movie, the .NET Rocks movie, there was a, I used a Steadicam plugin. And of course that is just ridiculous in terms of a processing overhead. And I took hours and hours and hours just to render, you know, a, a half hour of movie or not even half hour, like 10, 15 minutes. So what I ended up doing was, and I have a classroom here, I installed, I uh, I made an image of... Premiere, and I installed it on each of the machines in the classroom through an image. And then I also installed VNC, and I, I copied portions of the files that I needed to render, <laughs> segments. Yep. And I copied those over and ran them and, and just had all these machines spinning up on. So, in other words, what you could do in a multi-threaded application, what these guys could do is that they could break down a timeline into you know into clips like i would render this clip on that processor this clip on that processor et cetera. Mm-hmm. but uh, do you uh, do you know uh, have you been talking to avid or adobe about how they might be able to to do that kind of stuff yes
3: yeah, so we talk to a lot of of ISPs and customers and multimedia is one of the kind of the most obvious place for concurrency because you know, you it, you have lots of data, yeah, and usually you're doing very compute intensive things to that data, right? Um, and with things like you know HD cameras on the rise, oh, you know, man. people's desktops are just going to fall over if they try to do any type of processing on those things. And the nice thing is, you know, I was doing time some, to upgrade um, that P90. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, Intel and AMD have made it pretty clear that they don't intend to try in the future to improve clock speeds at a rate that we've seen in the past. They right, yeah, we're not going to see 4 processors. and 5
2: gigahertz processors anytime soon.
3: Right, instead of, instead of getting that 8 gigahertz processor, maybe you get... Uh, for two gigahertz processors, or even right. better than that,
1: Joe. What, I'm speaking at Dev Connections. One of my talks is called "Not Faster Processors, But More Processors." Awesome. It's exactly what we're talking about.
3: Yep. So I, you know, I was doing an exercise uh, as part of one of the the projects I'm working on. I wanted to make sorting regular .dot uh, NET data structures quicker, right? Kay. And I have this nifty uh, eight processor dual core machine um, that is really cool, really it has a lot of processing power, but, you know, if you call array.sort on that puppy, it only uses one processor.
1: Right, right. And
3: it's 100% CPU-bound, pegged the entire time. Right. So I I went ahead and implemented a parallel merge sort, which it wasn't easy to implement, but it was probably only 80 lines of code. Um, and <laughs> the thing ran six times fast. Wow. And it's it's amazing because... You can literally get that multiplier effect by writing your applications so that they're parallel. So a dual-core machine, I mean, if you have a so-called perfectly parallelizable problem, you can make that thing run twice as fast. It's almost as though you you had a 2 gigahertz processor one day, and the next day you had a 4 gigahertz processor. That kind of of, uh, performance increase.
1: It's very cool that you guys are thinking about this down at the framework level. Because the more stuff you can do down there, the less we have to worry about it, and you can just say, "Oh well, when you write with .NET, it's going to take advantage of these processors if you have them." Can you guys actually quantify the number of processors and modify your code on the fly to based on the n- number of cores or processors that you see?
3: Yep, the the OS gives us that information, so we could use that. One of the challenges, and I I totally agree. The more we can do uh, transparently, that make you know users code just go that much faster we should do it yeah one thing we have to be careful of you know with all of these new cores one of um one of the things we have to worry about is um power consumption you know just because somebody's laptop has four cores on it mm. do we really want to use all four cores to sort a little dinky data structure yeah maybe not you know maybe they they want their battery uh to last for a couple more uh, hours, So maybe doing that on one thread might be a better approach.
1: I think you need a little shifter on the side of the laptop there, you know, yeah. just like pick your gear, you know?
3: Yeah, no, maybe. <laughs> that's not a bad idea, actually. How many, you know, it's like the turbo button on the old uh, PCs.
1: That's right. That's right. How <laughs> fast do you want to push your PC?
3: Right. But that's not the only problem. There's also, you know, these BCL APIs live in a world where there's a whole lot more going on. On top of them, and is it really the right thing for that little sort API to suddenly take up all eight processors, or or is there other work going on right. that really is higher priority that should take those processors and you know what this although this individual sort operation might take only one hundred milliseconds instead of eight hundred milliseconds well we 're willing to live with that eight hundred milliseconds for this particular instance yeah those kind of those decisions are really hard to make, and it kind of comes back to what we were talking about. At the beginning, our stuff is at the bottom of the stack. Everybody is on top of us. Any yeah. decisions we make that are that impactful need to be made very, very carefully.
2: Yeah. 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 The problem with being so generic is you impact everything, which means if you do it right, we all benefit.
1: When you do it wrong, we all suffer. Oh yeah. And it's not just enough to put in, you know, Boolean switches, right? Because that means there's a switch that somebody has to remember to flip. Right. And chances are they're not gonna, right? But,
2: you know, this walks nicely back to this whole IRC discussion where it's not enough just to have multi-threading and multi-cores and so forth. It's about thinking about the right way to do this for this code. You know, rather than locking the sockets,
1: we lock the conversation. Yeah. That's (laughs) brilliant, by the way. I'm going to... uh... I'm going to rewrite my IRC server. No, I did. <laughs> steal that one. I, I did write an implementation of IRC, but not a server. I have written multiple threaded socket servers, though. That's what I'm talking about.
3: But it's also, you know, once you once you start locking the conversation, then you, there are you, there are measurements you can do. There are things you can do to that to make it even faster. Like maybe you only want to lock part of the conversation, like. The the coarser grained your lock, the the worse the parallelism in general is going to be. So, and then as um, Carl mentioned earlier, you can start thinking about reader writer locks. You can get really fancy with the stuff, and that's that's where it starts to become really difficult.
1: Yeah, that's right. I guess number one rule is try to keep it simple.
3: Make sure it's
2: correct. I think there's also okay. a sense of what is the overhead of uh, occur of uh, using this distribution.
3: Well, there's there's a lot of overhead distributed throughout. Like, first, there's obviously overhead with just having additional threads around. Um, you know, just in terms of virtual address space, each thread takes up one megabyte on Windows of virtual address space. So you can imagine mm. creating a couple hundred thousand threads might start to become an issue. Mm.
2: That might be bad.
3: Yeah. <laughs> if you... Unless you want to witness extreme paging of your machine, (laughs) but most people don't want that. No, Um, paging bad. So that's one one issue. Uh, Another issue is when you have more threads that are runnable. I mentioned earlier, in the thread pool scenario, you ideally only want to have one thread per CPU. And the reason is because if you ever have more than one thread per CPU that's ready to run, well, the OS scheduler needs to be fair, and it needs to make sure that all the you know the the threads at the same priority get an equal time slice on the processor and any time a thread needs to be evicted from a processor there's a context switch overhead in addition to impacts on the the machine's cache hierarchy you know that that process, or that thread might have pulled in a whole boatload of data into the cache hmm. and then suddenly it's going to be evicted and another thread is going to be scheduled that pulls in a whole boatload of new data which causes all of the old threads data to go back into main memory, release the cache lines, all of that. And then maybe the, the first thread is going to get scheduled again, so this kind of ping-ponging effect can occur if you right. have too much threads. Hmm. Um, then there's the overhead with synchronization and communication. You know, you usually have to actually break up your work. That can take some overhead. Yeah. Um, actually taking a lock has some sequential overhead. In addition to just creating contention on the machine, you might actually... Like I was saying earlier, with massively parallel applications, you don't ever want a thread to go to sleep. But with, with locks, that's essentially what you're doing. If you lock a data structure and another thread tries to acquire that lock, well, it ends up, it'll spin very quickly. Um, in our implementation, the monitor spins very quickly. But ultimately, it falls back to waiting and going to sleep, which means that you know the thread then needs to be scheduled, and hopefully it gets put back on its ideal processor, Yep. all this kind of stuff compounds to create some some problems that are very subtle and to be honest our tools today don't help you that much in debugging this kind of thing
1: why 25 what's why so special 25? about 25 threads
3: I have no idea. <laughs> it seems
1: very arbitrary.
3: I think one day some people were in a meeting, and they were trying to figure out the number, and uh, they threw some numbers on the table, and that was maybe the median value. I, I have no idea.
2: Yeah, one of them wanted 16, and the other one wanted 32, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which both
1: would make more sense to me than 25. All right, so here's a story for you. So I was in New Orleans at the Café du Monde having uh, beignets and coffee with chicory with a whole bunch of people. And uh, Ingo Rammer was there. And Ingo wrote a book on remoting, and he's consequently doing a lot of work uh, in, uh, in Europe. And he told me that it turns out 25 is like the, the magic number at which no matter how fast the processor is, that, that's when performance begins to degrade. Hmm. Now, uh, that's just what he said, and I have not not heard anybody else's theory. The theory being that at 25,
2: the cost of context switch, the cost of cash swap, and so forth, exceeds the value of the additional threads. Correct.
3: Yep. That is very likely, and it sounds a lot more plausible than my explanation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So we had this dartboard. Yeah. <laughs>
3: The cool thing about our thread pool, a lot of people actually try to roll their own because of these one-off problems. You know, yeah. They want to express prioritization among work going on the thread pool. They want to avoid this deadlocking problem. The cool thing about our thread pool is that we've sat under ASP.NET for three releases now, mm. and their requirements are very, very high of yeah. us. They they So we've basically optimized for throughput to ensure that Things like not introducing too many threads that causes all this context switch overhead and cache thrashing doesn't happen. So we've evolved it over time, and our algorithms are pretty complex. We actually take into account the activity on the entire machine when we're looking at whether we should inject a new thread or retire one. So it's pretty complex stuff.
1: And it's cool. So,
2: uh, Joe, you've got one book out now, .NET Framework 2.0? Yep. Or any day now, I guess.
3: It'll be out at the end of uh, end of this month.
2: Great. And so where are you focusing in that book?
3: So that is actually um, targeted to professional developers who have prior experience either with .NET or with Java or C++. Um, and it's kind of a look at the CLR and .NET framework um, with a focus on the 2.0 feature set. So it goes into some of the new things that you can do. Uh, goes into some of the reliability improvements we've done in 2.0 so that we can be hosted in process in SQL Server, for example, uh, right. generics, that sort of thing.
2: Cool. And then the new book coming is uh, really a lot of what we talked about today, uh, concurrent programming.
3: Yes. So it's concurrent programming on Windows. Um, I'm actually co-authoring it with Herb Sutter, who... Has written a lot of articles and does a lot of speaking on concurrency. I work with him quite a bit here at Microsoft. Um, That one, you know, we just started, um, so it's going to be a while. Uh, We think it's going to be towards the end of 2006, perhaps early 2007, once it hits bookshelves. But there are no great books today on how to do any of this. And given that, it's it's only becoming more important over time. So clearly, there's something needed, and
1: it's definitely time.
3: (laughs) The book is. Kind of, It looks at the whole architectural stack on the Windows platform, including the Windows OS and what it does, and some of the priority-boosting things and GUI applications that we talked about earlier, plus the .NET framework and some of the new features in Visual C++ 2005 that help um, large-scale uh, concurrency actually make it accessible to, to most people.
1: Well, Joe, I'm going to end this show with a question I ask all my guests. Uh, have you have you seen anything lately uh, that caught your eye on the web? Uh, tools, toys, downloads, utilities, um, toys. As I said before,
3: can I plug my own tool?
1: God damn it! No. <laughs> <laughs> All you blue badges want to plug your own stuff. <laughs> We're sick of it. No, go
2: ahead. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not MSN search, you can plug it. <laughs> no,
3: okay. Go for okay. it, man. So it, it ties in with, with what we've been talking about. Um, I wrote an MSDN article that um, is in MSDN magazine uh, for the April edition, which is, I guess, just been mailed out to customers. Okay. And it comes with a tool that I wrote, and I spent a long time on this, but it, it actually uses the new hosting APIs in the .NET Framework 2.0 to do deadlock detection. Wow. So it's actually, a, it was a fun project for me to work on, and it, in theory, is a useful thing for people who are writing concurrent software today. It essentially allows you to do, uh, it's a test harness that monitors your application for deadlocking and gives you more information about why it occurred, how you might go about fixing it, and that sort of thing.
1: Where can we get it?
3: So you can download that off of MSDN, Unfortunately, the page, I believe, goes up tomorrow. Okay. Um, so if you just go to msdn.microsoft.com, uh and then click on the MSDN Magazine uh, link, uh, it's, the article is called No More Hangs, Advanced Techniques for Deadlock Detection and Avoidance on .NET. It should be up there tomorrow, uh, which is the 4th which, if you're listening to this next week, has already happened, so you can go there and get it now.
1: Yeah, we'll put a link to it on the show page. That's fine. Great. Hey, that sounds very cool, actually. That may be the coolest thing I've downloaded this week. (laughs) 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 Joe Duffy, thank you very much for being on .NET Rocks. And, hey, would you entertain the idea of doing a DNR TV episode as well?
3: Yeah, that would be cool.
2: Definitely, I'm up for anything. Excellent. I think uh, a demoing your test harness in DNR TV would be a great, great show.
1: Absolutely, but now it means I got to get a dual core box going. Aww, <laughs> yeah, I got, I got to spend some money, buy some toys. Oh well.
3: Deadlocks can happen on single processor machines, so we should be good to go.
1: Okay. <laughs> All right, Joe. Thanks a lot.
3: Thank you, guys.
0: .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back.
1: Pay my taxes with my credit card